So you can start a conversation by saying things like, I noticed lately there's been a change or you haven't been wanting to engage with this activity. How are you? What is going on? That's Dr. Vera Foyer, a specialist in child psychiatry. Oftentimes, it's not a solution that kids are looking for. It's just listening. And the advice she's offering is aimed at parents of kids who are struggling with suicidality, which is defined as the combination of suicidal ideation and a plan for ending one's own life. Conversations like this can be life-saving, but many parents struggle to find the words to start as they fear the worst for their child. Now, new data from the CDC point to an alarming trend. More kids are struggling with suicidal thoughts and behaviors, raising the temperature on an already scary situation. While the suicide rate is still relatively low, the CDC reports that dying by suicide is the eighth leading cause of death in children aged 5 to 11. And it's the third leading cause among adolescents. But Dr. Foyer explains that there are steps you can take to help a child in your care. Hello, and welcome to 20-Minute Health Talk. I'm Sandra Lindsay. This is part one of our series examining a topic that, as a mother, I can say with certainty, no parent wants to discuss. And many simply do not know how. But the rising rate of child suicide in the United States is one that we must face. And we'll do that together over the next several weeks with experts and advocates who are finding innovative ways to address this problem and improve access to care. Here is my conversation with Dr. Vera Foyer, Director of Emergency Psychiatric Services at Cohen Children's Medical Center, as she breaks down the potential causes and warning signs and solutions to this troubling trend. Dr. Foyer, a pleasant good afternoon to you again. It's such a pleasure to meet you. This is a very important topic. You know, as a mom myself, I am just so concerned when I read anything about children harming themselves. It's every parent's nightmare. Child suicide and suicidal ideation is on the rise. Um, can you walk us through, please, some of the CDC data that was released earlier this year showing this drastic spike? Uh, sure. Uh, thank you so much for having me and thank you so much for covering this really difficult but very, very important topic. The numbers through the years have been increasing and this is not a new trend, but new data has been released by uh, the CDC uh, about an increase from about 2007 to 2021, so more recently, that indicates a very significant 60% increase 
in overall uh, suicidality uh, in uh, children and uh, adolescents. So you mentioned suicidality. Can you talk to us about the differences in suicidality, suicidal ideation and suicide? Sure. Great question. Uh, Suicidal uh, ideation is the term that we use that encompasses thoughts, uh, uh, maybe preparing behaviors towards an act uh, of suicide, which then is the term that we mean by intentional self-injury aiming at uh, ending in death. Suicidality on the mm-hmm. other hand, is an over-encompassing term that includes all of that. So it includes ideation, behaviors, gestures, thoughts, uh, as well as deaths uh, from suicide. So suicidality has increased by over 60% in the time frame you mentioned. And that's according to the National Center for Health Statistics report issued in June of this year. There was another CDC report called the Youth Risk Behavior Survey that came out in February that found similarly alarming numbers. Can you tell us more about that? It is a survey that's done on a nationally representative sample of 9th through 12th graders and is done uh, in schools across the country. So it has been done for quite a while. So we have longitudinal patterns uh, that we know. In fact, rates have been increasing, but we have been here in history before. We do know from this survey and other CDC data that in the past, uh, in the in the 90s, mm-hmm. uh, before uh, certain medications were available for the treatment of depression, certain evidence-based treatments were available, rates were higher, uh, higher even than currently. Uh, and then they dropped. And then they started increasing again. And we can talk more about yeah. those patterns. But, you know, this is obviously very concerning also because in addition to uh, suicide rates increasing, we're also seeing rates of depression, uh, rates of serious suicidal ideation, uh, suicidal attempts. Uh, and then also, as mentioned, completion rates are also increasing. And there are particular groups that are at higher risk than others, including our uh, uh, African-American populations, our BIPOC uh, population, uh, and our LGBTQ uh, plus youth. There is some very recent provisional data from the CDC indicates that from 2021 to 2022, for the first time in a long time, the actual suicide rate in the youth group of 10 to 24-year-olds has decreased about 8.6%, which is pretty significant. Overall, for the entire population, rates went up, but for this population, rates have dropped, which is very, you know, hopeful and promising and hopefully a beginning of a trend. Uh, But we we are concerned and we should be, and there are many things that we can do as healthcare providers and as parents uh, in terms of helping uh, impact on these trends. And we will talk about those things and it is promising and I'm happy to hear that bit of information that we're seeing a decline. 
Something else from the survey was that um, the biggest increase in percentage of youths who seriously considered suicide was among young girls. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, young girls ages 10 to 14 has had the biggest increase in both emergency room visits for suicidal ideations, for behaviors, gestures, uh, self-injurious acts. Um, uh, And uh, they had had this very sharp increase. And there's a lot of theories and uh, a lot of thoughts and research uh, looking at why that is. Uh, One that is commonly discussed is... uh, the impact of social media. Uh, And in fact, even the years uh, of increase uh, in both ideations and completions, which is most marked from 2007, uh, is uh, immediately the year after Facebook was available to high Mm -hmm. school students. So there's definitely, and since that year, uh, use of social media has skyrocketed among youth. And there's a lot of research coming out how that impacts and how girls are different than boys in yeah. the way they use social media. Mm-hmm. Girls are much more likely to share things about themselves and post. And with that, much more vulnerable to the feedback that mm-hmm. they might receive. Uh, they're also much more prone to compare themselves yeah. and social expectations in way of looks. Uh, And we know that social media doesn't necessarily reflect truths. So we know that social media plays a big role in this. Some other factors identified in these reports include academic and home pressures, lack of access to care, and economic factors. Listeners can find more information and a link to the full report in the show notes. Dr. Foyer, beyond these reports, what are some factors that, you know, predisposes a child to suicidal ideation and suicidality? Sure. Um, So uh, suicide risk factors are many, depression, anxiety, different mental health diagnoses, uh, Previous uh, suicidal uh, ideation or attempts uh, will also increase a person's risk. Family history of suicide is an important factor. And what they need to be really mindful of is that when you do see an impact on functioning, academic functioning, social functioning, family functioning, when you do see a significant change in any of that with symptoms of isolating, poor sleep, changes in eating habits, changes in activities, dropping things that they previously were involved in or engaged in, being impulsive. If you're suspecting that they're starting to abuse or misuse drugs or alcohol, giving away possessions, starting to talk about death, having hopeless comments of, there's no hope for me. I'm never going to amount to anything. I'm of no use. Things like that. And I sort of listed them in escalating order mm-hmm. to the point of then starting to talk about, I might want to end my life. I don't want to be alive. This is what I would do to end my life. I thought about it. I researched it. I looked it up. These are sort of the escalating things that, that we are on the lookout for. So what can parents do? What can grandma and aunties and friends and the community do? How can we pick up on these signs? 
asking is really important. Checking in, knowing your child, being attuned to when there's a change, which is hard. Adolescence is a time of change. The best way to pick up on signs is to, from an early age, fostering an environment of open communication and being able within the family to talk about issues and things. And what what that means is, is that you're able to sort of just accept their experience and hear what they have to say without necessarily making comments about trying to make it all better with good intention, uh, trying to make them feel better. Oh, it's not so bad or other people have it worse. Those comments, in fact, are very invalidating to the kids because it really doesn't recognize and uh, accept their experience of what they're going through. So what that results in is kids Mm -hmm. won't come. Who wants to hear that? Like they won't come and talk. So the reason why it's so important to foster this environment from early on so that kids, when they have a hard time, will tell us about it when we ask. Right. So what are some of the things that we should never say? We should not say. When kids are talking to us about various mental health issues that they're that they're struggling with, you know, saying things like my daughter's schizophrenic is again equating the person with the illness it's it's like saying you know my husband's hypertensive is a hypertensive and instead saying that they're living with schizophrenia or living with bipolar disorder living with depression it's a person with depression is really uh just a lot more uh appropriate and uh helps break these negative stereotypes it's a difficult topic to discuss just talking about feelings especially if you're not a culture that talks about and asks your child about how they're feeling. How do you, as a parent, approach this? Even just some of the words we use. It is really important to be mindful of language and and the words that we use. Saying things like, this must be really hard for you. This must be scary or lonely. I'm so glad you're sharing with me so that I can be there for you and understand it and be there with you. Saying things like, you know, it seems like you're feeling really bad and you're having a hard time knowing what to do next. Let's talk together about how we might work through your problem and work together uh, on it. Should we be offering solutions? Like, I think you should do this and that and this and that, or let them kind of come around. I think first and foremost, listen, especially if you have an adolescent who's, you know, adolescents developmentally want autonomy. They want to be independent. They want to come up with as much of their solutions as they can or as much of the control as they can. So really even asking, like, do you need my help? Do you want my suggestions? And the answer might be no, and that's okay. And then you can say, you know, can, can you, do you want to share with me what your solution is going to be? Giving them autonomy, but support. It's really the key. So at what point should the parents seek help? If you feel that there's a significant change that's lasted more than, you know, two weeks, uh, where there's a significant impact on your child's functioning in any of these areas that we sort of covered, it's important to at least uh, outreach. Uh, And in the first 
phase, I might recommend parents reaching out to their pediatrician, to their school psychologist or counselor or social worker. If they have a relationship, check in with others that know your child. Are they seeing the same patterns? Is your child also behaving this way in other environments and what might they suggest as sort of the next step. So that might be a good first place to start, but certainly don't wait until things escalate to the point of them now talking about ending their life or researching things, which is, you know, those require immediate assessment. Uh, There's also ways to get to your insurance company and get a list of providers uh, that are covered by your insurance. And that might also be a good place to start. Uh, It's uh, certainly, you know, worth trying as well. So we talk a lot about lack of access. We know that there aren't enough mental health care providers of any kind to meet the need which seems like it's continuing to grow coming out of COVID-19. What is being done at the state and at the federal level to help? Yeah, so again, this is something that maybe a a little bit of a silver lining from COVID that it did ring the alarm bells everywhere on an already existing and then escalating crisis. And on the federal and on the state level, there has been a lot of money being allocated for mental health uh, interventions for youth uh, during this period, both to support programs that work with pediatricians, as well as with schools and other programming that really helps support families. I want to talk more about the program that you're leading, Dr. Foyer. Can you tell us how Northwell has partnered with schools to not only help expand access to mental health care, but also to help families avoid the emergency room? Sure. We have uh, several programs, uh, both at the hospital, at Cohen's Children's Medical Center, as well as embedded in the community uh, of uh, programs that are called uh, behavioral health centers. Uh, They're essentially uh, similar to what you would see in a medical urgent care. They're the uh, behavioral health equivalent of an urgent care where you can go where you don't quite need the hospital, uh, you don't quite need an emergency department, but you need quick access and you need to be able to see a doctor, get evaluated, even in the sa- on the same day if it's a crisis, when there's a safety concern about your child and somebody tells you that or your child tells you that, these are places where you can get assessed, where you can see a psychiatrist, and then the team can come up with a plan for you of what you and your child need, and then we do our best to help connect with that care, whether that's within or outside of Northvale, you know, figuring out what works best for the particular family, um, you know, with their insurance, with their physical location, with their preferences, linguistic, cultural, and otherwise. You know, the uh, school partnership programs serve 32 school districts that represent 200,000 students uh, who have direct access to the clinical care and all the other programming uh, that the programs provide. That, that is just awesome. The idea of having these behavioral health centers is just amazing for so many reasons. Do we have plans to expand those? 
Yeah, absolutely. So it is our hope and plan to continue to work uh, on expanding the programs. School districts are reaching out and they want to collaborate and we want to be able to help uh, increase access overall everywhere that we can. For our audience that is outside of New York that's listening, what resources are available to them? The uh, American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry has an education pamphlet series called Facts for Families uh, that provides uh, education to families on various topics, including what to expect when you have to go to an emergency department or how to approach suicidality with your child to many, many others. The American Academy of Pediatrics has a website called healthychildren.org, which provides reliable education uh, on various topics, including mental health. uh, And the organization called NAMI, which is the National Alliance on Mental Illness, their mission is to support families with education and support. And their websites and their local chapters in each state are a wealth of resources for families to get connected to treatment, to get support, and to get education. So those are some organizations that provide reliable information. This is awesome. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. This has been part one of our series on the growing crisis in child suicide. The CDC data we discussed today is no doubt alarming to every parent, but I want to thank Dr. Foyer for helping us to better understand the situation, as well as what caretakers and health systems can do to help. And as she told us, it's up to caretakers like us to start that conversation, do it early, and hopefully save a life. Remember to check back with us next Wednesday, September 20th, for part two of our series. We'll dig deeper into the impact the behavioral health centers have on students in New York and how a fantastic nonprofit called Your Mom Cares is stepping in to help. We'll speak with its co-founder and CEO, Sharon Falstein, as well as one of its leading power moms, Robin Paul, about that and their larger mission to improve mental health and wellness in children. Until next time, I'm Sandra Lindsay, and this has been another episode of 20 Minute Health Talk.